0: Chapter 13 of English Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. English Literature by Geraldine Hodgson. Chapter 13. Idylls. By the word "idyll" is meant a description in prose or verse of some scene or event which is striking, picturesque, and complete in itself such an idol may stand alone or it may form a kind of interlude in a longer composition in our literature idyllic passages are commoner than isolated idols indeed the actual name is best known to us by the idols of the king and browning's dramatic idols a nation which has cared so truly and comprehendingly for the beauties and charms of its own native land could not help producing idyllic scenes and passages. And, as early as the ninth century, probably from our great poet Cinewolf, we find this description of the fabled phoenix's home. I have heard that there is far hence in eastern realms a land most noble, widely known to men. That plain is full of beauty, blessed with joys, with the fairest fragrance of earth, unique is that island that is a winsome plain the woods are green far stretching neath the sky nor there may any rain or snow nor breath of frost nor blast of fire nor storm of hail nor fall of rime, nor heat of sun nor everlasting cold nor warm weather nor winter shower work harm a wit but the plain endureth blessed and wholesome That noble land is starred with blossoms. There stand no hills, nor mountains steep, No stony cliffs rise high as here with us, Nor dales, nor glens, nor mountain gorges, Caves, nor crags. No wit of roughness bideth there, But the pleasant field, blossoming with delights, Bringeth forth beneath the clouds. Serene is that pleasant plain, its sunny grove gleameth, winsome its woodland glades. Its increase faileth not its pleasant fruit. But ever the trees stand green as God gave bidding. In winter and in summer are the groves in likewise hung with fruit. Never a leaf fadeth in the air, nor shall flame work them harm forever. Ere that the ending of the world shall be. As of old, the turmoil of the waters, the sea-flood covered all the world, the compass of the earth, yet that noble plain stood all unhurt, firm held against the waters surging, blessed, uninjured of the tossing waves, through the grace of God. So it shall bide in blossoming until the coming of the fire of the judgment of God, when the chambers of death the shadowy sepulchres of men shall be open. As we pass down the centuries, we find that Chaucer, true lover of country things, has filled the Romant of the rose with idyllic little pictures, of which one of the most beautiful is his picture of the river. With that water that ran so clear my face I washed. Later on he tells of the garden, where eventually he found the well of Narcissus, and the rose with the wonderful bud. How singularly attractive this is! The trees were set as I devise, one from another in a size, five or six fathoms apart, I trow. But they were great and high also, and to keep out well the sun, the crops were together thickly run, and every branch in another knit, and on them fully green leaves sit. The sun could not there descend, lest the tender grass were burned. There men both rows and does might see, and of squirrels full great plenty, from bough to bough always leaping. Conies also there were playing, out of their little burrows coming, of many sorts and colors running, and there in tournaments they met, upon the springing grass, all set francis bacon once planned a garden on what he called royal ordering namely so that at every season of the year there should be things of beauty the whole as he made it is exquisite but his provision of fragrance so difficult to present in words is perhaps the most purely idyllic passage of all because the breath of flowers is far sweeter in the air where it comes and goes like the warbling of music, than in the hand. Therefore nothing is more fit for that delight than to know what be the flowers and plants that do best perfume the air. Roses, damask and red, are fast flowers of their smell, so that you may walk by a whole row of them and find nothing of their sweetness, yea, though it be in a morning's dew. Bays, likewise, yield no smell as they grow, rosemary little, nor sweet marjoram. That which above all others yields the sweetest smell in the air is the violet, especially the white double violet, which comes twice a year, about the middle of April and about Bartholomew tide. Next to that is the musk rose, then the strawberry leaves dying, with a most excellent cordial smell, then the flower of the vines, it is a little dust like the dust of a bent, which grows upon the cluster in the first coming forth. Then sweetbriar, then wallflowers, which are very delightful to be set under a parlor or lower chamber window. Then pinks and gillyflowers, especially the matted pink and clove gillyflowers. Then the flowers of the lime tree. Then the honeysuckle, so they be somewhat afar off. Of bean flowers I speak not, because they are field flowers. But those which perfume the air most delightfully, not passed by as the rest, but being trodden upon and crushed, are three, that is, burnet, wild thyme, and watermints. Therefore you are to set whole alleys of them, to have the pleasure when you walk or tread. The massed fragrance of all this recalls that other garden in the Song of Songs, A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden, and eat his pleasant fruits. My beloved is gone down into his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley, and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. It was well indeed that the Bible, and especially the prophetic and poetical books, should have been translated into English when the sweet and musical prose of the seventeenth century was in its highest perfection. Thomas Traherne, writing later in the same century, tried to make men comprehend this world's unutterable beauty. In the early pages of his great book, Centuries of Meditations, only by an accident recovered a few years ago from a second-hand bookstall, he claimed that the world is a mirror of infinite beauty, yet no man sees it. It is a temple of majesty, yet no man regards it. It is a region of light and peace, did not men disquiet it? It is the paradise of God. It is more to man since he has fallen than it was before. It is the place of angels and the gate of heaven. But he could not be satisfied to leave it there. He could not be content that men should continue not to see it, if, by hook or crook, if by idyllic presentation, he could make them see the world as he himself saw it. The corn was orient and immortal wheat, which never should be reaped, nor was ever sown. I thought it had stood from everlasting to everlasting. The dust and stones of the street were as precious as gold. The gates were at first the end of the world. Boys and girls tumbling in the street and playing were moving jewels. I knew not that they were born or should die, but all things abided eternally as they were in their proper places." Eternity was manifest in the light of the day, and something infinite behind everything appeared. In that last line quoted before, Traherne lets out the secret that this fair world is the waving, as Newman said, of the raiment of those who stand in the presence of God. All these passages are parts of larger wholes, but there are isolated idols to be found in our language. Mr. Yates' well-known Innisfree is a good instance, not the less interesting or beautiful when we remember that he wrote it when he was living for a while in the dreary region of Marylebone. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, For peace comes dropping slow, Dropping from the veils of the morning, To where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, And noon a purple glow, And evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, For always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping With low sounds by the shore, While I stand on the roadway, Around the pavement's grey, I hear it in the deep heart's core. Another Irish idol, perhaps more beautiful still, and certainly far less well-known, is Seamus O'Sullivan's The Sheep. Slowly they pass in the grey of the evening over the wet road, a flock of sheep. Slowly they wend in the grey of the gloaming over the wet road that winds through the town. Slowly they pass, and gleaming whitely, vanish away in the gray of the evening ah what memories loom for a moment gleam for a moment and vanish away of the white days when we two together went in the evening where the sheep lay we two together went with slow feet in the gray of the evening where the sheep lay whitely they gleam for a moment and vanish away in the dimness of sorrowful years Gleam for a moment, all white, and go fading away in the grayness of sundering years. No English poet has outstripped Tennyson in sheer loveliness of natural description. His poems are full of idyllic passages. With him, this chapter, which might be almost endless, shall close. King Arthur's Picture of the Island Valley of avellion Seems like an echo of Cinewolf's picture of the phoenix's home. I am going a long way to the island valley of Evelion, Where falls not hail, nor rain, or any snow, Nor ever wind blows loudly, But it lies deep-meadowed, happy, Fair with orchard lawns and bowery hollows Crowned with summer sea, Where I will heal me of my grievous wound. On the other hand, this exceedingly beautiful description of the land of the lotus-eaters is believed to be entirely original, though, of course, the subject was taken from the Odyssey. All round the coast the languid air did swoon, breathing like one that hath a weary dream. Full-faced above the valley stood the moon, and like a downward smoke the slender stream along the cliff to fall and pause and fall did seem. A land of streams, some like a downward smoke, slow-dropping veils of thinnest lawn did go. And some through wavering lights and shadows broke, rolling a slumberous sheet of foam below. They saw the gleaming river seaward flow from the inner land. Far off, three mountain tops, three silent pinnacles of aged snow, stood sunset flushed, and dewed with showery drops, up clomb the shadowy pine above the woven copse. Lastly, let us recollect, but with held breath, lest we break the stillness, those lines which, no doubt, owe something to older poets, but whose golden perfection are Tennyson's own. His Description of the Vale in Ida For now the noonday quiet holds the hill. The grasshopper is silent in the grass. The lizard, with his shadow on the stone, Rests like a shadow, and the cicada sleeps. The purple flowers droop. The golden bee is lily-cradled. I alone awake. End of chapter 13 End of English Literature by Geraldine Hodgson.